Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Our guest today is Eric Foner. Eric is the DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at uh, Columbia, right. and a very prolific author, 26 books, <laughs> including the one that we're talking about today. And uh, he, this is a book called The Second Founding. So the book is about uh, the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, so the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which established birthright citizenship plus the rule of equality under law, and then the 15th Amendment, which I guess just gave vote to men of all color, but not women. African-American men, African -American. franchised African-American, right. So uh, my, my first question then for you is, uh, why did you frame that period as the second founding? Right, actually that was a phrase that was used by some people at the time to indicate that the changes in the Constitution and in the whole society that followed the Civil War really transformed this republic. In other words, th these three amendments are not just small changes in an existing structure, but they make the Constitution something different, really fundamentally different than it was uh, in the pre-Civil War period. It, it because they, they, first of all, abolishing slavery, number one, the original Constitution protected slavery in significant ways, but really creating the, a real definition of American citizenship for the first time and putting this idea of equality for, among all Americans, regardless of race, into the Constitution. The original Constitution does not use the word equal except um, where it, at one point it talks about what happens if... Uh, two candidates for president get an equal number of electoral votes. Hasn't happened yet. Um, but uh, really, it, it cre the, 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 these amendments created a whole new set of relationships between uh, Americans of all kinds and the national government. So that's, the second founding is a way of trying to suggest the significance of these changes. Well, as we were talking beforehand, I'm, I'm an avid reader of history in that what I've learned about history is it's always changing. Yes. And you make that point when you're giving an overview of the historian's view of this period. It's different today than it was mm -hmm. 100 years ago and maybe still changed. Why was that? Yeah. Uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde, you know, who said the only obligation we have to history is to rewrite it. <laughs> and that's what historians always do. Um, this particular period, Reconstruction, is a very good example of why historical interpretation changes, but why it's also important. For a long, long time in the 20th century, when I was in high school, in the late 50s I was learning this, the general view of this period after the Civil War was that it was a big mistake. It was, the, it was a period of corruption, misgovernment, vindictiveness of the North toward the defeated South, uh, and the real problem, the, the mistake that was made was giving African-American men the right to vote because this doctrine, which actually originated among Columbia University professors, my predecessor long ago, William A. Dunning and his students, the Dunning School, we call it, 
you know, they basically absorbed the racial prejudices of the early 20th century, and they just said black people are incapable of taking part in democratic government. Giving them the right to vote created this kind of travesty of democracy. That is important because it became part of the justification of the Jim Crow system. Whenever outsiders said, well, you know, the Constitution is being flagrantly violated in the South. Black people have lost the right to vote guaranteed to them in the Constitution. There's no semblance of equality in the Southern states. Um, the answer would always be, if, we if, if you make us change, we're gonna have the horrors of Reconstruction again. Reconstruction was sort of a defense of this view of the Jim Crow system. Now, when the Civil Rights Revolution took place, this whole edifice fell to the ground because the racism was just no longer acceptable. And uh, today, uh, I think most scholars view that period as a, uh, a sort of courageous effort to create a genuine interracial democracy in this country for the first time. And that reflects, you know, the post-Reconstruction sensibility uh, in this country. Uh, so, you know, historical interpretation is written with at least one eye on the present. That, that's why it always changes, because the present changes and the things we desire and need from history change. Yeah, I think uh, it was Faulkner who said famously that the past isn't dead yet, it's not even past it's not yet. A, well, in this particular period, that is certainly the case. Yeah. I mean, the, the issues of reconstruction, I see there's enough younger looking people here that they'll understand this reference, are, are on the front page of our newspapers. Yeah. Most of my students wouldn't know what that is. Yeah. But, um, you know, who is a citizen? Who should have the right to vote? I mean, that's on the front page of the New York Times today, yes. voter suppression, you know, and that's a reconstruction issue. So, um, you know, the, the, what we think about that period really is important today. So what I'd like to do is take each amendment separately, which is yeah. what you do in the book, and it's such an interesting framing for the amendments, starting with the 13th Amendment, which was uh, the famous plot line of the Spielberg movie Lincoln on the House passage right. of it. Do you think that they needed uh, to pass an amendment uh, instead of just having the Emancipation Proclamation? Yeah, the slaves? Hadn't, hadn't Lincoln freed all the slaves with the Emancipation Proclamation? And the answer is, well, no, not exactly. I mean, the proclamation is a critical turning point in American history. But first, of, there were four million slaves in the United States when the Civil War broke out. The Emancipation Proclamation declared free about 3.2 million of them, or that is to say it left another 800,000 unaffected. Most of those were slaves in the four border states, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri, that remained in the Union, even though they were slave states. The proclamation was a military measure against the Confederacy. It had no bearing on these four states with about 700,000 slaves that were still in the Union. And then for one reason or other, Lincoln exempted some parts of the South. So you needed more than the Emancipation Proclamation to actually completely eradicate slavery and also to abrogate the state laws which created slavery. The proclamation freed a lot of individuals, but it didn't change the legal structure that created slavery in the first place. Right, now I know you've told me several times that you're not a lawyer, you're just a historian, but what you do so well in the book is actually a legal analysis of the words in a sense that, so in this case of the 13th Amendment, it's very simple, it says slavery basically is abolished, but then people had to figure out what that actually meant. Well, it seems simple, 
neither slavery nor involuntary servitude can exist in the United States anymore. Okay. But what exactly does it mean to abolish slavery? The, the, the amendment opened as many questions as it solved. Uh, what exactly is abolished when you abolish slavery? Is All right, people are no longer property. They can no longer be bought and sold. Well, what about the racism that is essential to slavery? Is that also being abolished? Um, what about what, what will be the status of these people? Now you have four million people who are no longer slaves, but what, what are they? Will they be citizens in the same way that white people are? Will they have the same political rights, economic rights, social rights? The amendment didn't say. It left it to, now one of the key things about these three amendments is that each one ends with a clause saying, Congress will have the power to enforce this. And so it made, it made this an ongoing process. Congress can now decide, well, to secure the abolition of slavery, here's what has to happen. And they actually did that very quickly in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, one of the most important laws in American history, um, saying, okay, these freed people now are gonna have the same rights as white people in what you might almost call the economic realm. That is, they're gonna have the right to own property, to sue, to be sued, to go to court, to testify. The rights you need to compete in the marketplace. Um, that's part of the abolition of slavery, they said. And um, so these, the, the process of abolition is not just a one-off. It's something that goes on for a long time. And you know, in some sense, we are still as a society trying to come to terms with the consequences of the end of slavery in this country. Well, that, that statement that you referenced in the amendment, which is Congress shall have the power, was right. a big change from the Bill of Rights, which yeah. were Congress shall make no law right. abridging rights. The, that's, that's why this is a second founding, because it empowers the federal government to be the protector of people's rights. The Bill of Rights, which lists you know, many of our basic civil liberties is a, when written, was a restriction on the federal government. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or the free, you know, freedom of the press, et cetera, et cetera, and then on and on with the other amendments. It has nothing to do with the states. Try to give a anti-slavery speech in South Carolina before the Civil War. That's against the state law. Well, doesn't that violate the First Amendment, freedom of speech? No, because that only applies to the federal government, not the state governments. But now, with these three amendments, it is Congress that is empowered to protect people's rights. The states now are seen as more likely to uh, interfere with your liberty than the national government is. And so it really changes the federal system, the relationship between our uh, national government and our state governments the balance is shifted of power and responsibility con considerably toward the federal government. Charles Sumner, the uh, great senator from Massachusetts, said these amendments make the federal government the custodian of freedom. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that at all before the Civil War. Well, the, what comes out so strongly in the book, Eric, is the fact that uh, my own view is that the Constitution was a brilliant achievement, but a very flawed document. Right? Yeah, well, it's, it's a work in progress. Work in progress. And uh, as is often quoted, you know, many of the people who were at the Constitutional Convention understood that. They didn't, uh, it wasn't carved in stone the way it somehow has yeah. become in our minds. They, they knew it was an experiment. They 
put in the process of amendment precisely so that changes could be made, you know, if uh, flaws were <laughs> uncovered later on. So yeah, it, 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 they didn't chuck out the old constitution, although some people said, well, hey, the constitution has palpably failed. Mm -hmm. We've just had a civil, you know, there's nothing in the constitution that tells you what to do after a civil war, right? Mm -hmm. um, why don't we have a new constitution? But no, people were devoted to the constitution, but they said it really needs some serious change to make it better. You know, this is our opportunity to get rid of the influence of slavery in the constitution and in the whole national regime before the Civil War. Right, and it feels like the, the most seismic shift with these amendments, starting with the 13th, mm -hmm. is the old frame was Constitution said federal government can do X and everything else right. is for states. Right. And this shifts it the other way. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, Congress shall have the power to enforce it. I mean, it it empowers the national government. The, you know, now it's true, the the reason the original Constitution was written was the nationalists like Madison and Hamilton and others thought that the government under the original Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, was too weak. They wanted a stronger central government, but not too strong. Mm -hmm. And the Bill of Rights, as we said, was, compl was completely devoted to limiting what the federal government could do in all these important um, you know, civil liberties areas. But uh, now, uh, yeah, the second founding empowers the national government. After a giant war, the, <laughs> the national government is empowered, no question about that. Now, as you said, uh, the 13th was just the beginning of the story, and it was a story that needed to evolve. And the next step was the 14th Amendment, because as you say, what were rights uh, for, yeah. freed, for anybody, not just freed yeah. slaves? And you come to the 14th Amendment, the longest amendment to the Constitution, and I think by consensus, the most important amendment to the Constitution. Yeah, it's still, every session of the Supreme Court now has cases arising from the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment has been the basis of some of the most f important judicial decisions in the last half of the 20th century and up to, I mean, you know, there, and things which have nothing to do with the issues of Reconstruction, apparently. For example, the gay marriage decision right. was a 14th Amendment decision, equal protection of the law. If um, heterosexual couple, if a state allows heterosexual couples to marry, they have to allow other people to right. marry. That's what equal protection means. Um, that's a, now, the people who wrote the 14th Amendment weren't thinking of gay marriage. That wasn't an issue in 1866. But the principle of equality before the law, equal protection of the law, uh, can as they understood, could expand to cover all sorts of people, um, you know, at, uh, way beyond the former slaves who are the focus of attention in 1866. But yeah, the 14th Amendment deals with things that are no longer relevant, really, like, uh, let's say, um, what happens to Confederate bonds, people who loaned money to the Confederacy? Are you going to get that back? Well, nope. <laughs> the 14th Amendment, I'm sorry, you're never going to see that money again. Um, will owners receive monetary compensation for their slaves. Slaves were legally property. They were very valuable property. That property is abrogated by the federal government. We talk about reparations today sometimes. Back then, Southerners were demanding compensation. Mm -hmm. 14th Amendment says, nope, you're never gonna see any more money for the loss of your slaves. Um, but the core is really the first clause, which, as you said, begins by saying, 
anyone born in the United States is a citizen, with the exception of Native Americans who are still considered um, citizens of their tribal you know, nations. Um, that is, it, before the Civil War, there was no definition. The Constitution talks about citizens in about 10 different places. It never tells you who is actually a citizen of the United States. And birthright, but the Supreme Court in Dred Scott in 1857 said, only white people can be citizens in this country. No black person can be a citizen. I don't care if they're, obviously they're talking about free people, but your parents, grandparents could be here. It doesn't make any difference. That's eradicated. Now it, it elevates citizenship to something that does not have barriers of race, of religion, of national origin, or even, and this is of course issued today, the status of the parent, right? The parent can be, convict, can be guilty of a crime, but that doesn't affect a child born in the United States, right? But today, of course, on the border, and uh, the, our president has mused about just abrogating the first sentence yeah. of the 14th Amendment as far as yeah. children born to women who are undocumented right. immigrants. But that is not what the language says. It doesn't say your parents' legal status depend, affects whether you're a slave or not, yeah. uh, I mean a citizen or not. Uh, and then the amendment goes on, as we said, to say all these people have to have the equal protection of the law and also to enjoy the privileges or immunities of citizens, whatever those are. Yeah. And states cannot deprive you of these. In other words, when the the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law. 14th Amendment, no state can deny you all these rights. So again, it shows you that shift of power. The most important right, political right at least, is the right to vote, which is where the issue progressed and produced the 15th Amendment. Yeah, the, the right to vote then becomes the crux. For should black men have the right to vote? At, at this point, only five northern states allowed black men to vote. Pennsylvania didn't, Illinois didn't, Ohio didn't. New York had a very high property qualification for blacks, not whites, which basically eliminated almost all of them. Um, it was not a popular position to allow black men to vote, but nonetheless, uh, you know, there were principled positions, hey, this is a democracy, you can't exclude large numbers of people, uh, but also politics, you know, hey, this is a large group of people who are likely to vote Republican, you know? And if you don't allow black men in the South to vote, how are you ever gonna get governments there that are, will, will be Republican and also respect basic rights? So um, even before the 15th Amendment, Congress had mandated that new governments be established in the South, the so-called radical reconstruction governments uh, with black men voting, but then it's put into the Constitution and affects the whole country, not just uh, the Southern states. Um, but it's very controversial and it, it wasn't that easy to get it ratified because the, the principle which still exists today that the states determine who votes, right? Voting re regulations differ from state to state to state. There is no national, the radicals wanted a national principle. Unfortunately, not for women, but every male citizen 21 years old or over will have the right to vote. That would have solved a lot of problems if they had been able to do it. But northern states themselves didn't want to give up control of their own electoral uh, requirements. And so 
they were unable to get that through. So it's a negative amendment. It says no state can deny any person the right to vote because of race. But that leaves a giant loophole, right? You can use other yep. restrictions, literacy tests, poll taxes, other things which were in fact used later in the 19th century by the southern states to deny blacks the right to vote. They didn't say these are racial. If they said it's racial, yep. then they would violate the 15th Amendment. But the Supreme Court, unfortunately, said, well, all right, as long as you don't mention race, uh, you can do this, even though all the blacks have lost the right to vote. That seems to suggest that it has something to do with race. But the Supreme Court just uh, you know, said, uh, I'm sorry, we, we can't do anything about that. So let's talk about the Supreme Court because this is where it gets really interesting because we have the three amendments in place right now yeah. and the court begins to interpret it. And uh, I, I would just say this, that you, when you read this book, <laughs> particularly this chapter on justice and jurisprudence around these three amendments, you realize how important the Supreme Court is then and now in American society. And you realize, I don't want to get into current politics too much, but uh, you realize that a conservative Supreme Court can do great, let me just say, great, can do great damage to the rights of Americans. It has happened in our past. This Constitution is a you know, great document, but it is not self-enforcing. Somebody has to enforce it. And the Supreme Court has the power to do that, but it also has the power to, in effect, block enforcement. So, yeah, I mean, justice and jurisprudence, the title of that chapter is, as you know, is borrowed, or is a little tip of the hat, to a very large book that was unknown to me and most other people, but when I started writing this book, by a group of African Americans in Baltimore who called themselves the Brotherhood of Liberty, and it was mostly lawyers, ministers. Uh, and they, in the late 1880s, they published a very big book, 600 pages, critiquing Supreme Court decisions on the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments and putting forth a different interpretation, which was much more robust in giving the federal government the power to intervene to protect individuals' rights. Um, the reason I emphasize this is, um, when people, sometimes when people like myself criticize Supreme Court jurisprudence today on racial issues and others, we say, well, you're, you're imposing, uh, you know, today's values on the Constitution. You're reading today's values back uh, to, uh, or let us say, you're imposing them on, that wasn't what people were thinking when they wrote these uh, amendments. But my point is, yeah, there were a lot of people thinking differently at the time. We shouldn't take the nine Supreme Court justices as the only interpretation in that era. Mm -hmm. In other words, a more robust view of what the 14th Amendment can, and the others, 15th, can accomplish is also rooted in the historical record. It's not just something made up at the moment for political reasons. But... Um, yeah, there's a long train, I don't want to go case by case by case, but there's a long train of decisions in which the court, little by little by little, just eviscerated the protections in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, especially the 14th and 15th, um, and gave judicial legitimacy to what we call the Jim Crow system in the South, which w any person who looked at it rationally would say these are completely at odds, the, the situation in the South with the, the purposes 
of these reconstruction amendments. Do you think that the court was largely during that time reflecting the underlying sentiment about these policies? You know, I used to think that. One of the things that when you do research, uh, as I used to always tell my students, is uh, the easiest thing in the world is to find what you're looking for. <laughs> now, you have an assumption, it's easy to find evidence. Yeah. What real research is, is finding the things that surprise you, yes. that, may, that may actually force you to go back and rethink some of your presuppositions. And I was quite surprised at how long the Republican press actually uh, rejected these Supreme Court decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't, it, it's not that the Supreme Court was just mirroring public opinion. Certainly there were people who agreed with them, but there were a lot of Republicans who said they are destroying one of the great achievements of our party, these three amendments. This is down into the 1880s and 1890s. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're saying, you know, the Constitution can be violated with just impunity, it seems, according to the uh, Supreme Court. So, you know, my view is who gets on the Supreme Court to begin with? And in that period, it's not law professors like they are today, or at least graduates of Harvard, Yale, and Columbia. That's the only one who seemed to get on the, um, uh, the law schools. They're, but they're lawyers, but they're very sort of upper crust types. They're uh, uh, business, corporate lawyers for railroads, they're admiralty lawyers, they're, none of these justices, with very few exceptions, had any contact with African Americans at all. They didn't come out of the anti-slavery movement, they hadn't in their political careers really developed a, you know, compassion for the uh, slaves and the, uh, and the former slaves. Um, they didn't think very much about the uh, actual practical consequences of some of their decisions. So, you know, I think it's just the whole legal framework at that time uh, was not geared to uh, what I would consider a, a better interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And they all had been educated in an era in which state-centered federalism was what they learned, you know, that, right. and that they were very afraid that the federal government was being too empowered mm -hmm. and that they wanted to redress the balance between the power of the federal government and the power of the states. But that really caused disaster for African Americans in the South. Well, again, the, the point that becomes so, uh, so vivid, Eric, in, in, on this issue is that the 14th Amendment is such a powerful judicial tool. Yeah. Rights can be expanded through it and rights can be contracted to it. And right. so it's all in the opinion of the court as yeah. to which way it's going anytime. Yeah, it is. The 14th Amendment, and you know, if you go to the more recent history, the last 50 years, let's say, from the Warren Court on, so many key cases have been 14th, you know, Baker v. Carr, one man, one vote, or the right of privacy, abortion rights, uh, as I said, gay marriage, uh, many, Miranda case, you know, the, the police behavior, all those are 14th Amendment cases. They all deal with the basic rights of American citizens when confronting state governments and, you know, state action. Yeah, I think, Eric, what we often forget in this country is how unique uh, a form of government that's a written constitution meant to be a social compact. And so as I'm listening to you explain your research, 
What I always think of is that those debates are the nation talking to themselves yeah. about the issues, like a good newspaper engineering a debate. I mean, this is a moment with, you know, it's a tran transformative, they all understood they're living at yeah. a transformative moment in the history at the end of a civil war with the, you know, basically one of the fundamental institutions of the country, slavery just er eradicated, change is gonna happen and people wanna have a voice in that. So yeah, that, that makes it a really interesting dynamic moment. Thank you so much. All right, well, thank you very much. It. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. This podcast was recorded on October 25th. 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.